Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, then please turn in them to James chapter 3 as we continue today a series of messages that we started four or five weeks ago, and that we're calling God's Word in My Everyday Life, and in which James has been coming to us message by message, week by week, and this is what he's been saying in essence. He's been coming to us, and he's been saying, guys, I want to tell you something about real faith, and here's what I wanted you to know. Real faith is visible. Real faith is something you can see. And here's the reason why you can see it, because when you really have it, it actually shows up in real and demonstrable, verifiable, visible ways in your life. There should be things in your life that you look at now and you say, man, I would never have done that six days ago, six weeks ago, six months ago, or maybe for you it's six years ago or 60 years ago. Something's changed. You see it. Other people see it. Real faith is visible, and it is absolutely undeniable that that is the case. Here's what real faith never does. It never professes real faith with a mouth that never then backs up that profession with a life. Now, it doesn't mean that it's visible all the time. And in some people, it's a lot more visible than in others, but it's never invisible for the whole of your life. So real faith is visible, and today he's going to add to that message, and he's going to come along and go, okay, real faith is visible, and real faith is audible as well. In other words, real faith shows up not just in what you do, but what you say, not just in how you live, but also in how you speak. And if you've been studying carefully this book together with us these last few weeks, you know that this is something he's already been kind of moving towards, because he's made a few comments along the journey prior to James chapter 3. So, for example, he says this in James 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, "'Know this, my beloved brothers.'" And I thought it'd be nice to just pause there for a second and say, look what he called you. "'My beloved brothers, my beloved sisters.'" You know, we've made kind of a lot about the fact that he is an overly blunt guy, and he is a really blunt guy. He wears his thoughts, his feelings, all of it on his sleeve. He's not ambiguous. He doesn't hide what he's thinking or what he'd like to say from us. He just comes right out and says it. He uses words like worthless and dead. And, you know, I mean, there's no dancing around with this guy. And yet he wears his heart on his sleeve too. Time and again, he comes to us and speaks to us as the beloved of God. He's a pastor, guys. And he has a pastor's heart and concern for you. So he says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, oh, please don't miss this, be quick to do what? Be quick to hear and slow to speak, to which he then immediately attaches slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What was James doing three weeks ago when he said that to us? He was stepping into our everyday life and he was saying, hey, listen, mano y mano, I know something about you. And I know it about you because I see it in me. In fact, I don't just see it in me and in you, I see it in everybody. And here's what I see in everyone, natively, naturally, as human beings. We are very slow to hear and incredibly quick to speak. And as a result, so frequently we miss the heart and soul of what someone is trying to communicate to us because we interpret it through the lens of our hurt or through the lens of our wounds or through the lens of our anger or through the lens of whatever. We're very slow to actually listen, to actually probe, to actually make the effort necessary to seek to hear what's really being said, and very quick to jump to conclusions, and then to open our mouths, and to speak, usually in anger. 
and in doing so to produce the very opposite of what God, by real faith and His Spirit, is trying to produce and to produce both in us and then to bring up out of us in terms of our actions and in our words, which is what? It is the righteousness of God. For you see, real faith is not just visible, it's audible as well. It shows up not just in what you do, but what you say, not just in how you live, but in how you speak, which is exactly what James said to us a few weeks back in James 1 verse 26. Listen to this. He says, if anyone thinks that he is religious, that is to say that he is truly saved, that he really has faith and does not bridle his tongue, does not come to be capable of controlling his mouth, you ready? But deceives his heart. This person's religion, and here we go, little bluntness, is, well, it's worthless. Real faith is not just visible, it's audible as well. It shows up in what you do and what you say, how you live, and how you speak. One last example before we get to James chapter 3. In James 2 verse 12, he says this, he says, so speak and so act. And when we studied this verse together, we saw that in the Greek language, that's in a tense that carries the idea with it of a continuing action. And so in other words, you should literally translate this, so continually speak and so continually act. There is a consistency of speech and a consistency of life that he is calling us to. So continually speak and so continually act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, but judged in regards to what? Regards to the authenticity of our faith. Real faith is visible and audible also. It shows up not only in what we do, but what we say, not only in how we live, but it shows up also in how we speak. And that's what James is going to turn to now in James chapter 3, probably the most famous passage of Scripture in all of the Bible dealing with our speech, dealing with our tongues, as he calls it. And he starts out with this statement. He says in verse 1, he says, not many of you should become teachers. And I kind of like that because I feel like James is sort of coming down out of the pulpit and sitting down with us in that statement. You know, he's saying, look, I'm not just going to talk to you today about real faith and about speech, but I'm going to talk to me today about real faith and about real speech, okay? And I'm talking to me. I want you to know also today about this as well. I was reminded of just how important the words of a teacher are this morning when I ran into a couple who hasn't been here since 1999. They're from Australia, and they told me that they listen to Rio Vista in their kitchen in Australia. I thought, you win the prize. That is the farthest away. You know, I've heard Georgia, you know, but Australia. Not many of you should become teachers. And some are feeling a little relieved right now because you're thinking, good news, I'm not a teacher. But he's not just going to talk to teachers today. And secondly, maybe you are. Are you a parent? Are you a community group leader? Do you work in children's ministries? I mean, is there some place in your life where you regularly handle and teach God's Word? James says this, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, my brothers. You hear what he calls you? And here's why, because it's a really big deal. He says, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And by the way, both with regard to what we do and say, both in regard to how we live and speak. And what makes it so incredibly dangerous, either to be a teacher or just to open your mouth and have a conversation with somebody, 
is that this thing called our tongue is the single most difficult part of our bodies to control, which is the point that he will now make. He says, for we all, and I love the word we, he's saying, me too. For we all, every single one of us, stumble in how, in how many ways? In many ways, not just in one way or two or five or three. We are very creative in the way that we stumble. I think we stumble oftentimes we don't even realize we're stumbling. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And then he says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says. Now notice this. He is a perfect man. Able also to bridle or to bring under control the idea is that his whole body, which means what? Well, it means that your mouth is the most difficult part of your body to control and... By the time you get control of that, you've pretty much mastered everything else. And that's saying a lot, isn't it? When you think of your passions. James is saying your mouth is dangerous. And it's dangerous, first of all, because, again, it's the most difficult part of your body to control. But now he's going to up the ante a little bit. Because now he's going to say, oh yeah, and that most difficult part of your body to control sets the direction and the course of your life. Listen to the analogies beginning in verse 3. He says, if we put the bits into the mouths of horses. Now, what is a bit in the mouth of a horse? It's an instrument of direction, is it not? It's a small thing that goes into the mouth of the horse that directs the entirety of the body of this really, really large animal. He says, if we put the bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well, all right? You yank to the left, he goes left. You yank to the right, he goes right. You pull back, he stops, unless you're me and you don't know how to ride a horse and the horse knows it. He just does what he wants. But if you know how to ride a horse, that little bit directs the whole body. All right, so he's not done. He says, look at the ships also. Not a difficult task for those of us who live in the yachting capital of the world. For those of us who drive over the 17th Street Causeway Bridge, look at the ships, he's saying. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're subject to such hugely powerful forces. They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. It's an instrument of direction. Here we go. He says, so also the tongue is a small member of your body is the point. And yet it boasts of great things. Yet it sets the course and direction of your whole life. And I hope that you can appreciate the dilemma that he's sort of laid before us because, again, on the one hand, he said, okay, your mouth, oh, man, most difficult part of your body to control And, on the other hand, also happens to be the thing that guides and directs the course of your entire life. Sobering. And if you're not buying it yet, then I'm just going to throw some statements out. Direction-setting statements. You ready? I will marry you. Or I will not marry you. That's directional. Isn't it? I love you, or you know what? Nah, not feeling it. Changes everything. I'm going to take the job, sell my house, uproot my family, leave the church, move all the way across the country. That's directional. Or you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take less money and stay right where we are. Sometimes that's the right decision. Not always. But do you consider it as a possibility? 
kind words, angry words, loving words, helpful words, hurtful words, hateful words, gracious words, bitter words, have set the course and direction of every one of our lives. There's no question. Our greatest joys and our greatest sorrows in life are oftentimes set up and accomplished by things that have come out of our mouths, okay? But it's bigger than that yet because not only do our words set the course and direction of our lives, but they set the course and direction of the lives of other people as well. I had somebody say to me once, Tom, be careful where you lead your people because if you take them down a dead-end street, the only way out is to turn around and then walk all the way back through them. And I thought, wow. Yeah. That'll take your breath away quite literally. Leadership is a weighty task, and that's true in a church, that's true in a family, that's true in a marriage, it's true in a business, it's true in a small group. Because the words that come out of your mouth not only set the course and direction for your life, but for the lives of others. Think about it in terms of parenting. I've shared this with you in the past, but one of the things that I've made a habit of doing with my kids over the years is when I tuck them into bed at night is I say to them, not every night, but a lot of nights, I'll use my little boy as an example, I'll say, hey, son, do you know that if I could choose any little boy that has ever lived in the entirety of the course of human history on planet Earth or that ever will yet live, do you know who I would choose every single time? And he's heard it so many times he heard it again last night that it's kind of like, oh, wow, here we go, you know? I mean, he's almost given up verbally responding, but I make him respond, and now usually he just takes his finger and goes, that's the answer. And I'll say, yeah, that's right, you. In good times and in bad times, happy and sad, up and down days, days where we've been frustrated with each other and days where, man, it's just been awesome. Every day, all the time, you. Now, what am I doing? Am I just flattering him? Am I filling him full of platitudes? No, I'm setting the course and direction of his life. I'm telling him that he's worthy of love, that he's valuable, that he's bright, he's worth listening and spending time with, that he's talented, that he's gifted. All of these different things, that's what I'm doing. I'm building his confidence. I'm helping him to feel secure. I'm providing for him a a basis and a foundation for healthy relationships and courageous thinking and successful living. And guess what? I'm doing it all with my mouth. And if you're a parent, so should you. And I know, you know, I've had parents say to me, well, you know, that's difficult for me because, you know, my parents didn't do that for me. And that is difficult. It is certainly a higher hurdle if that's the case for you, but it's not an excuse. It's just not. God has given you His Spirit. God has given you the wisdom of His Word. And hey, you know what else? God has given you His people to help lead and guide and encourage you to give to your children the thing that, frankly, you most uniquely understand the value of, having been robbed of it. Do it. So anyway, so I set the course and direction of my kids, for example, with my mouth, and hopefully I do that positively. I can tell you for a fact I don't always do it positively because the mouth is the most dangerous part of our bodies to control, isn't it? And I certainly haven't done it positively for everyone. I went to the Westminster Academy football game uh, Friday night, 
And we were sitting there with some friends of ours that we hadn't seen in a while, and their son came walking by. He's like in sixth grade, and I think he's 5'10". In sixth grade, you know? And then he's walking with his best friend who's like not even up to his shoulder. So it's like frickin' frack, you know? And they went walking by, and I just started laughing, and I said, do you see the shorter kid? And she said, yeah. I said, that was me. I was the shorter kid. I hit puberty when I was like 35. Some of you witnessed it. And my best friends, both of them, were really like unusually large kids. I mean, they were bigger than the kids in the grades ahead of us. One of my friends was 5'6 in the fifth grade. He had hair on his chest in the third grade. (laughs) And the funny thing is, is he used to make fun of me for being so small. He'd call me shrimp, he'd call me shrimp, he'd call me shrimp. And I say that it's funny. It wasn't funny at the time. It's funny now because he's still (laughs) 5'6. And I'll be honest, that makes me happy. Nothing wrong with being 5'6", but I'm guessing shrimp is not in his vocabulary unless he's at a restaurant, okay? But I was small, and I made up for being small by having a really big mouth. It's what I was known for. I see life, and everything that happens to be funny, even if it's inappropriate, happens to pop into my mind. And I had a lot less of a filter back then than I do now. So a teacher said something, I thought it was funny, I'd interrupt the whole class to let everybody know what my funny thought was. And you know what? They agreed with me that it was funny, except for the teacher. If some kid said something stupid, I I pointed that out. That was really dumb. That was really hysterical. Did everybody see that? While that kid's wilting. The problem wasn't that I saw everything funny. The problem is that I made fun of other people, or a lot of what I pointed out as being funny came at the expense of other people. And if you are one of those kids here today with the really sharp tongue, let me tell you how your life is going to go in all likelihood. You're going to grow up in all likelihood. You're going to get married, probably. You'll have children. It's not a guarantee, but it might happen for you. It's certainly the way that it went for me, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And then you're going to watch as your kids grow up and how they interact with other kids, and you are going to hear some of the most vicious, mean, not very funny, though everyone but one kid laughed kind of comments coming out of the mouths of other kids and even out of the mouths of your own kids at times. And you're going to see as an adult the damage and the hurt that that actually inflicts in the heart of a child. And at some point you'll go, I was that big mouth kid. And you'll wish you weren't. And whenever I say something like that, you know, parents go, preach it, Tom. You know, somebody needs to say this. And that's true. Here's the irony, however. If it's your child with the sharp tongue, the somebody who needs to say it is you. And the somebody who needs to say it when it's me is me. This says something about the heart of our kids that we need to interact with, as we'll see in a minute. That's where it comes from. There's a problem with the heart. And God has given their hearts to us. Because even kids with their words can set to some degree the life direction and course of other kids. And so many of us here can testify to that. You know, there are so many ladies who go through all of their life and no matter how beautiful they are, you'll never be able to convince them that they're beautiful because they were the object of the derision of a group of kids who told them that they weren't. 
There are so many people who are actually really very bright, but they're forever convinced that they're not because that's what they were told. There are people who struggle with their sexual identities because other kids have told them that they just didn't quite measure up as a boy or that they didn't quite measure up as a girl. I mean, on and on the list goes. And those are not insignificant things. They're really big, life-direction-setting things. Beware what you do with your mouth. I see this also, lastly, in terms of marriage. We have a friend of ours who's, we're going to talk about witty. She is amazing. I mean, she is so sharp and so funny. And she's just, for whatever reason, been studying all these marriage books. Like, she's made it her mission to study marriage books the last few years. She's read by far more marriage books than I will ever read in my life. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, you need to ask her if she would just do me the favor of, like, doing a best of, you know? Like, grab the books that you really like the best, grab the lessons that you really think are most profound, and then give me the best of for husbands and the best of for wives. And I don't know how many hours she spent doing this, but I got like five pages, 12-point font, single space for both husbands and wives, and it's brilliant. I want to annotate it and just give it to everybody. It's very direct, however, I will say that. And what struck me is how much of it has to do with how we listen and how we speak. So much of it is, hey, wife, when you say this, here's how he hears it. Oh, hey, husband, when you say this, here's how she hears it. And when you don't comment on this, he thinks this. And when you don't comment on that, he thinks that. And when you blow up and do this, this is what's happening in his heart. And when you blow up and do this, this is what's happening in her heart. And when you, it's all about communication. When I meet with people in premarital counseling, I'd say to them, hey, listen, this person that you are joining yourself in covenant together with is in some sense sort of taking their heart and handing it to you. They're opening themselves up within the safety of this covenant relationship to you in a way that they're not going to do with anyone else. And you can use that power for great good, or you can be hugely destructive. So what's it going to be? So on the one hand, James comes to us and he says, look, the tongue is the most difficult part of our body to control. And then secondly, (laughs) it also sets the course and direction of your life. And then all the analogies end and he stops talking about what our tongue is like and he starts talking about what our tongue actually is. And listen to the language he uses. Second part of verse 5, he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We see that with the brush fires, you know. Some, somebody throws their cigarette out the window and bam, up go thousands of acres. You wake up, you walk out to your car, even if you're on East Fort Lauderdale, it's like, oh, the smoke, you know. Little spark. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is not as like. He says, and the tongue is a fire. And it is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of our life and set on fire by hell. I just wish he could have been a little more emphatic. I mean, you read that and think, whew, that's pretty extreme and also happens to be the truth. Yeah, I mean, the truth is every one of us is a burn victim, everyone here, and we have the scars to prove it. 
And those scars show up in so many different ways in our lives that are disabling. And every one of us here has set things and people on fire. There are people here, figuratively speaking, on fire right now from things that people have said to them, maybe people sitting with them. James says the tongue is a fire, and now he's going to tell us that it is an uncontrollable fire. So the news just gets better. Listen to this, verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Okay, we live in South Florida. We have parrot jungle, monkey jungle, metro zoo, seaquarium. We've got bush gardens in Tampa. We have SeaWorld, Orlando, where my wife grew up and was kissed by Shamu. She was kissed by Shamu. Now, just think about how ridiculous that is. Like a killer whale kissed my wife. It's the only boyfriend I don't have it in for. Seriously. We can tame Shamu, okay? But notice what he now says. But no human being, James is saying, not me, not you, not anyone, anywhere can tame the tongue. And then he says, it is, not it's like. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's the image of a venomous snake. Think about that. It's forked. Coiled and ready to strike always is the point. It's biting. It's deadly. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. You know, we come to church and we sing praises to Jesus and then we get in the car and somebody cuts us off. And then with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now listen, he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Notice that. From one mouth come two different things. And then it's as though he throws his hands up in the air, and I think in tears says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And here's what. I mean, we'd all agree with that. We're just, we can't do anything about it. It's like we're talking and we can't shut up. And James hasn't, it seems to me, offered us a whole lot of help, you know? The tongue is uncontrollable, period. Oh, well, thanks. But what is he saying? The tongue is uncontrollable by you. No man can tame his tongue. He can tame Shamu. He can make a parakeet ride a tricycle. He can have a monkey pick your pocket. but he cannot tame his tongue. He's taking us beyond our abilities very clearly and emphatically that we might then run to the only one who can tame our tongue and who tames our tongue by taming our heart. That's the way it works. See, the problem is not with our mouths. They function normally as they're designed to do. The problem is with our hearts. Jesus says this, Matthew 15, verse 18, he says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds where? From the heart. And the idea is that only Jesus can change your heart. And the point of the message today is, and when he does, it shows up not just in what you do, but in what you say, not just in how you live, 
but it shows up also in how you speak, which is why Paul, writing to believers in Jesus, to those who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus, to those who are committed to the Word of Jesus, to those who are involved in the heart transformational process of discipleship and of following Jesus. And he comes to us in Ephesians 4, verse 29, and he says to us, look, even though your tongue is the most difficult part of your body to control, nevertheless, let no, meaning not even a little, corrupting or rotten talk come out of your mouths. You have that kind of ability in Christ, he's saying, so let no corrupt or rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, meaning for building up of other people, not for building up of me. That's what I did as a kid. Put you down, I feel better. No, our our language, our words are for the building up of other people, which means, practically speaking, that, you know, we really don't need to win every argument. We just don't. We don't need to actually get everything off of our chest doesn't always help. We don't need to make every point. We don't need to be known and proved definitively to have been right every time, even when on those occasions we might happen to be right. We don't need for everybody to know everything that we think and all of our knowledge on any given particular thing. And we don't have to point out every funny thing. I just say that to myself. We learn under the power of the Spirit to show restraint. You have no idea how much restraint I show. You would be both appalled and impressed, I think. (laughs) He's saying your speech is not primarily about you. It's primarily about the people around you, and in Christ you have the power to make it so. Let no corrupting or literally rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And then he says, as fits the occasion, which means that we need to be sensitive to the needs of the people around us. We are so self-oriented, he's calling us to a selflessness, to an other's orientation that recognizes the occasion of each moment and that asks in faith, what is the most beneficial building up, not burning, but building up kind of thing that I can say to this person in this particular moment so as to fit this occasion? And then whatever that is, Paul's saying, that's what you need to be talking about. That's what you need to be saying. He says, let no corrupting or rotten talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. And then he concludes that it may give grace to those who hear. He's saying a heart that has been bought by grace, that has been made new by grace, that is being transformed by grace, begins to issue forth through your mouth, words of grace. It's the picture of a fountain with your heart being the spring or the well. And that's really one of the images that James closes with in verses 11 and 12. He says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? That should sound familiar. He said previously, you know, can, can you praise God with your mouth and curse people in the likeness of God? See, two things coming from one heart. Can you claim a pure heart that praises God in sincerity and yet do this, is what he's saying. And he's starting to drive that idea of duplicity home. He's saying, no, no, it doesn't work. Sorry. A freshwater spring brings forth fresh water. A saltwater spring brings forth salt water. It doesn't bring forth both. It comes forth after its kind. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No, it can only bear figs. 
Can a grapevine bring forth figs? No, it can only bring forth grapes. And neither, he says, can a salt pond yield fresh water. It can only yield salt water. He's saying your heart is like a well. What's coming out of it? Because when Christ really and truly takes hold of your heart and then by His Spirit begins this process of transformation in it, it should transform the way that you live, and it should transform also the way that you speak. Am I saying that you'll never, you know, curse at somebody that cuts you off in traffic again? No. Am I saying that you'll never utter an unkind word? No. Am I saying that you'll never struggle with selfishness and me-centeredness and, boy, I sure would like to say something that fits me for this occasion and not that person? No. But what I'm saying is that you ought to be able to look back and see a progression in your speech, even as you see a progression in your life that flows very naturally like fresh water from a fresh spring or salt water from a salt spring from the transformation that Jesus is doing in your heart. Real faith is not just visible, it's audible. And it shows up not only in what you do, but in what you say, not just in how you live, but also in how you speak. You ready? Last question. Since all of that is the case, what does your mouth say about you? What does it say? What does it say about your heart? Who it belongs to, and for that matter, it's transformation. And please know that whatever your answer is, the answer for every one of us is Christ, who alone can come along and by His blood wash away all of the frankly horrific things that I've said, and you. He washes us clean of our sin. And who alone has the power to tame something far more powerful than Shamu or a parakeet or a monkey? He alone can tame our tongues as He tames our hearts. That's what James is calling us to. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, we do um, ask for Your forgiveness. Uh, Lord, as Your Spirit calls to our minds so many very regrettable things that all of us have said, fires we've lit with our mouths and left behind to burn, and God also hurts and scars and wounds that we ourselves have received. We pray, Lord, that through Your Son that You would give us grace, that You would forgive us for every errant word, every untruthful word, every hurtful word, every regrettable thing that has come out of our mouths. And God, that You would apply the healing ointment of Your gospel as well to our scars, to our wounds. Lord, that You would give us the courage to talk to one another, but Lord, to hear more than we speak. And where it's appropriate to ask forgiveness for the things that we've said, maybe even today. And God, that by Your Spirit, 
you would continue your work of transformation in our hearts and lives in such a way that it pours forth in a life that brings you glory, and Lord Jesus, also in a mouth that brings you glory. May you be glorified both in how we live and in how we speak, God, in what we do and in what we say. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.